Hello there and welcome to episode 4 of The Game Pit. My name's Sean and this is another one of our Picking Over the Bones episodes. Hello, my name's Ronan and we're both going to be discussing some games that have fallen into the pit recently. Today I'll be discussing Love Letter, Forbidden Island and Thunderstone Advance, Caverns of Bane. Sean, what will you be talking about today? I'll be talking about Escape, The Curse of the Temple, Ginkopolis and Belfort. We hope you enjoy the show. talk about Ginkopolis. This is from Z-Man Games and Pearl Games and was released in 2012. This is a game from Xavier Georges who released games such as Trois, Royal Palace, Carson City which caused a bit of a rumpus in the game pit recently, Tournay and the Ladies of Trois. Now this game plays one to five players and has an average playing time suggestion of about 45 minutes. The air is 22-12. Ginkgo, Bilboa, is the oldest and strongest tree in the world and has become the symbol of a new method for building cities in symbiosis with nature. Humans have exhausted the resources that Earth has offered them and humanity must now develop cities that maintain a delicate balance between resource production and consumption. However, habitable space is scarce and mankind must now face the challenge of building ever upwards to develop this new type of city. You will gather a team of experts around you and try to become the best urban planner for Ginkopolis. Now in Ginkopolis, players create a city out of building tiles, expanding out across the table and upwards, looking to build area majorities. Each tile has a colour indicating the type of building on it. Blue, red and yellow. Blue tiles are office buildings used for developing real estate so that they provide extra building tiles. Red buildings are production buildings and give extra resources for building with. Yellow tiles represent housing, commerce or leisure buildings and provide success points, which is the game's term for victory points. So starting with nine building tiles, three of each colour, randomly arranged into a three by three square and around the outside are 12 letter tiles. A to L, which indicate where you can place future building tiles to expand the city. This is called urbanising in the game. There are two types of card in the game, the numbered building cards and lettered urbanisation cards. At the start of the game, the deck is made up of 12 letter cards and the nine building cards corresponding to the tiles from that form the city. These will always be numbered 1 to 3 in each colour. Building cards of 4 to 20 are kept in stacks to one side and will come into the game later. Now there's a quick draft of character cards, so that everybody has three characters in front of them. These give you special powers to add to certain actions during the game, and they also indicate the number of tiles, resources and victory points you begin with. You get an opening hand of four cards, plus two new hand tiles which can be cashed in at any time, enabling you to discard your entire hand and draw a set of four. These are worth two victory points each if you haven't used them by the end of the game. Now on to the gameplay. During each turn, everybody simultaneously picks one card to play from their hand of the four. Effects are resolved in clockwise order, beginning with the start player. At the end of the turn, you pass your cards to the left, including the start player card, and draw a new card from the deck to add to the hand you've just received. The cards have three uses, and these are your actions in the game. One, 
play the card on its own to gain the effect of the building pictured on it. Red, blue, yellow, as described earlier. Playing a letter card gives you either one resource or one tile. It's your choice. The second card or action is play a letter card with a tile from behind your screen in order to urbanise. This involves building the tile on the spot marked with the corresponding letter token, then moving the letter outwards to a free space, thereby expanding the city. You also place one resource marker on the new tile, and they could be worth points at the end of the game. After placing the tile, you get to activate all the adjacent tiles as if you played their building cards. The third action or card is play a building card with a tile from behind your screen in order to build a new floor on that building. You need to pay resources equal to the level of the new tile you're placing and you put these onto the tile, so adding up your influence in the area. You don't get to activate any tiles if you choose this action, but you do get to keep the building card that you've played and place it face up in front of you. Each building card has a special ability which can be triggered by taking the indicated action. Once the cards are sat in front of you, you gain access to those abilities. After each action, you can use any special abilities on the cards face up in front of you, which are triggered by the action you chose, including the powers of your character cards. Most of them give you some combination of tiles, resources and victory points, but some score bonus points at the end of the game. The end game is triggered by one of two things. Either one player has placed all their resources on the board, or the tiles have run out for the second time, which may confuse you as the tiles will now be either on the board or behind people's screens after the first run. What happens is the first time the tiles run out, each player can choose to return any number of the tiles from their supply to the general supply. Everyone chooses how many to return secretly and simultaneously, and receives one victory point for each tile returned. The game continues until those last few tiles run out. Once the end game is triggered, you play the round so everybody gets a turn. Scoring at the end of the game is as follows. You score victory points you collected during the game, plus two victory points for each new hand tile you still have. Any points due from cards played in front of you, and also district majorities. Endgame scoring cards can give you points for things like marker on a red tile, or for every tile you control of a size 2 or less, or for each urbanising powers in your display, etc. The board is scored by looking at who has the most markers in each district. A district is any group of adjacent buildings of the same colour, but a single tile is not big enough to count as a district and does not score. The player with the most resource markers in a district scores one victory point per marker, regardless of who they belong to. The second place player gets one victory point for each of their own markers in the district. If you're the only player in a district, you get to score two victory points for each marker you have in that district. Ronan, I know you've got some strong feelings about this game. I'd like to say that this game is very striking looking. I think that's one of the things that's drawn people in towards it, because it has made a bit of an impact, and the game looks, it's very colourful, it's very bright, but when you're looking at those components, certainly when I was playing with it, I felt like the good looks detracted from the play. They were beautiful to look at, but they just weren't very functional. There was lots of colours and lots of numbers and lots of letters, and they didn't all necessarily mean the same thing at the same time. What do you think about well, the component quality, which I think was high, but the actual component functionality as well? I'm not really sure, to be honest, Ronan. Yeah, it had really nice, vibrant colours, but I wasn't really a big fan of the artwork. And it might be a bit harsh, but it looked like CGI characters from a cheap Europop video. 
I think that's being slightly harsh there, Sean. I don't think it looks like a Europop video, but I suppose beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It looks to me like it has cheap CGI. That's, that's the thing. It was beautifully coloured, but again, they used up all the usual colours for your pieces in the game itself, and you got a random selection of weird like, oranges and greys to play with, and that kind of threw me off the whole theme bit as well. What do you think about that one? I think we'll have to agree to disagree on how it looks. I think it does look quite good. But yeah, there are conflicts there. The bright colours, the yellow, the red and the blue for the character cards, the cards you play. One of the, also the issues with it is that the card might be red, but the bonus it gives you will be a yellow bonus for points, for example. So you're looking at a card that's red. It's like those tests they give you where they write the name of a colour, but it's in a different colour. That's what those cards are like. You're looking at it and you're going, this gives me points. This is a yellow bonus, but it's a red card. So in your head, you can't do it. You can't manage to work your way around it. So I've definitely got issues with how it's designed graphically. For me, this game really is one of the most counterintuitive games I've ever, ever played. I just could not get the hang of this. Now, I've played a fair few games over the last few years. And I just could not get this. And I know you were getting frustrated with me, constantly saying to you, now what do I do again? How do I do? What does that do if I do that again? And I know you've had similar experiences, which I'd like you to talk about now, please. This is an absolute hog to teach, and I don't know why. You spend half an hour teaching a game that's supposed to last 45 minutes. Now, no game I've ever played has actually lasted 45 minutes. I think a three-player game came in just over an hour, certainly five-player games, way longer. But it takes so long to teach because, as Sean said, nothing is intuitive. Nothing really makes sense. I think there's a problem there. As I think Sean's brought it out to me before, the more games you've played, the harder it is to learn this game for some reason. There are only three actions you can do on your turn. You can build upwards, you can build outwards, or you can play a card. And the cards that you've built in front of your screen are going to add to that action in some way. But they're all laid out in front of you, you can see them. It's just really hard to get people's heads around how you do those things. How you do it, how you build up, how you build out, why you're playing the card. Now, I've got two theories why. I want to know what Sean has to think about this. And the first one I'm going to go with is you have a hand of four cards and you have some tiles. And you choose one of those four cards and you play it. Then you're going to take the three cards you have in your hand and pass it around to the left. And you're going to get three brand new cards and then draw another brand new card. And then the board's going to have changed because everyone's going to have taken actions to affect it. So every single turn, you're getting four brand new cards and the borders changed. So it's absolutely impossible to build up any kind of a strategy. I think that might be one of the things that's a barrier to people learning and getting into the game. What do you think about that, Sean? Yeah, I do think it's one of the things. Yeah, definitely. One person that ever got this game, really, was, was my wife. She got it immediately, understood it, never asked a question. Uh, and as I said, I think it's people, the more people have played games and the more experience they have of games, the more they're used to things making a certain type of sense. And this game just goes completely against that. Now, we've seen the passing the cards around with things like Seven Wonders. That's fine. I understand that. And as you said, the game board changes as you do. So you can't plan. But the cards not making sense. The changing of everything that you've planned or you can't plan. It all marries together and it just makes this a real nightmare to keep on top of in your mind. What's your second point, Ronan? My second point is, Sean, I've played it 
You've played it. How does that in-game scoring work without looking at your notes? No idea. Me neither. That in-game scoring does not stick in the head. There's three or four fiddly rules there around scoring. I mean, there's an area majority thing, but it's so hard to plan for that because whether you can get in an area or build up in an area depends upon the random tile draw and the random cards you get past and the random cards that become available. It's just really difficult to get your head around how that I can, you know, an area majority game where it's very difficult to decide where I'm going to press my case and try and take over an area. That's really difficult. And then the other kind of periphery scoring, that doesn't make any sense either. The scoring, Sean. I don't want to just talk about the scoring, which again is confusing. But what I want to do is I think we've, I think we've nailed this on the head now, to be honest. I think the cards are confusing. The mechanics are confusing. The scoring is confusing. I think we have our answer. The game <laughs> is confusing. Yeah, but we've got to try and dig into why. Otherwise, people will start thinking we're simple and bad because at games like we keep exactly saying. Exactly what you said. I played this game with you, and I chose one single mechanic of the game, and I just hit that bad boy for everything it was worth. That was the only thing I did. It was the only thing I could remember to do, so I just did it. I murdered it. And I won the game. That's not right. It's not right when you win any game. Uh, I'll just throw another one in there as to why it's confusing. The idea of these resources. Now, if ever there was a bland, generic term for something in a game, it's just resource. There's no name for it. We don't know what it is. And it's an attempt at being a somewhat thematic game with the tree and the city and there's nice artwork on the tiles and what have you that explains the growth of the city but then you have these things just called resources I talked about League of Six where they were just called red, yellow, green and blue for goodness sake come up with a name give me a chance when you just call resources resources oh, I cannot get my head around that and not only have they got a rubbish name they've got a real abstract purpose in the game they go on and there's more if you go up and if there's some around you and then they're also for scoring and oh those resources another layer upon layer of abstract they don't make any sense either the whole game is odd that's why i went to the trouble of reading out the spiel about what the game was about because even that's just crazy talk this game is odd this game came from an odd mind now this guy has made some fantastic games but i think he lost the plot a little bit with this one one more thing i did want to say about there's something also that's a real pain during the game and it makes it disjointed as well it's that deck of cards runs out all the time constantly how many many you're playing with after one round the deck runs out because it's set up in a certain way. And then you're having to take all the building markers off that's been built and drag out all the cards that belong to where it's been built or something like that, isn't it? Isn't it the tiles that have been put in, you take their cards out of the stack and then you create the draw deck out of them. And you're having to do it constantly every one or two rounds. You're constantly having to do that. It's like having to do the setup of the game, which is it's okay, but it's not very, again, not very intuitive. And then you're having to do more setup and more setup and more setup and more setup all the way through the game. And it confuses people because they're like, why are you taking that one out? Why is that there? Where did, that, did someone build that? It's just another way that kind of just has people's heads spinning. Yeah, it's, again, I don't know why this is built as a 45-minute game. It was never going to last 45 minutes. I think, now that I've ragged on the poor fellow, 
I think this guy has really, really tried to come up with a different game. He's tried to come up with something that stands out of the crowd, that's a little bit different, that does a little bit something unique. And fair play to him for that. I'm not sure that he's achieved it with this, and I'm not sure that this game will stand the test of time. On my summary of it is, I feel like it's a clock that's been taken apart, and all the different bits have been laid out in front of me, and I'm far too thick to put them back together again and make a clock out of it. It's like someone's taken all these mechanics and thrown them down, but not actually brought them together into coherent structure and game. This might be a good game. I'm certainly too thick for it. There you go. That's our thoughts on Ginkopolis. I would like to talk about the AEG and Japan brand card game that's been making a bit of a stir, and that's Love Letter. It's for two to four players. It came out last year in 2012, and it takes between 10 to 25 minutes to play. The design of Love Letter is Seiji Kanai, and he's known for lots of card games he's made. Uh, Chronicle, he's brought out R, RR, and RRR. Don't ask me to tell you the difference between them. He's also brought out the fantastically named Cheaty Mages, which I'm hoping to get a game in soon, because any game called Cheaty Mages has got to be quite good. He also designed the game Trains, which AEG have just announced they're going to bring out in the American market, which is a sort of a Dominion-like game, which also involves some routes on a board. The company who brought Love Letter across to, let's say, more of a Western market were AEG, and they're known for lots of car games. They built their reputation on Legend of Five Rings. They also, the publishers of Thunderstone, which we'll talk about elsewhere today. Smash Up, which came out last year. The Nightfall deck builder. Guildhall, which also came across from Asia from a Korean designer, came out in 2012. They also make some other games like Tomb and Adventurous. AG have made this part of their Tempest set of games. There's four games in it now, Courtier, Macante, Dominare, and Love Letter, in which the same characters and same storyline reoccur, and you're supposed to be able to get to know the different factions of different characters. Love Letter. It's a deck of 16 cards, which are split into eight different roles, and there's varying numbers of the different roles. During the game, what you're going to do is shuffle up those 16 cards, deal one card out of the game, and then deal one card to each player. Then the start player draws a card from the middle, and from the two cards in their hand, they're going to play one card down face up, and if that particular card they've played has an effect, that effect's going to happen now. The heart of the game is, it's very, very simple, and it's all about the interaction between the different cards and between the players. It's one of those games, again, that provides a framework in which players can interact with each other, and the mechanisms don't get in the way. So I'll just go quickly through the list of cards. Now... The AG version and the Japan brand version have got different names for each of the roles. They're not very different. There's a couple of minor differences, but I'm just going to go with the AG one because that's more widely available. The theme of the game is that you're trying to get the love letter to the princess who's locked herself in the tower because the queen has been arrested for some conspiracy and she's very upset, but your heart is breaking because you want to be with her. So the number eight card, the highest card in the deck, is the princess. Now, if you have the princess at the end of the game, anyone who's left in will turn over their cards, and whoever's got the highest value card wins, and the princess being the highest value card will get you that win. But, if you ever have to play the princess or discard the princess, you lose automatically. There is player elimination in this game. 
Now the rounds are super quick. They take two or three minutes. So if you're eliminated, it's time to get up, stretch your legs, sit back down again, and you'll be back in the game. The next card down is number seven is the Countess. And she's a high-powered card, being the next best of the princess. However, if you have in your hand the two cards, Countess plus King or Prince, she's been caught with the King or Prince, and she has to get discarded. So that's the card you must play if those are the two in your hand. So that might reveal something to the other players, that it's likely you might have the King or the Prince in your hand. Or have you? There's a lot of bluffing goes in this game, once you get to know it quite well. Then there's various other effects, and I'll just whiz through them. The King lets you trade hands with another player which is dangerous because then that player knows what card you have in your hand. With the Prince, one player has to discard their hand. It can be yourself if you want to get rid of what you've got hold of. Also, if you think someone's holding that Princess, you can make them discard the card in their hand. If it's the Princess, they're out. There is some protection, and that's the number four card. It's the Handmaid. You play that, no one can target you until the next turn. The Baron's number three, and when you play the Baron, you can pair the card in your hand with one other player. Whoever's got the lower value card is out of the game. The Priest is simple, he lets you look at the card in someone else's hand. And then the most numerous card is the number one, it's the Guard. Now this is the card that brings a lot of interaction into the game. When you play a Guard, you can guess what any other player is holding. And that's kind of a lot of the tactics, although there is a lot of guess and bluff work going on in it. You're trying to work out what everyone else is holding in their hand, because those Guards are five out of the 16 cards. They're going to come around regularly. And if you can work out what's going on, what other players have got, they're going to be a very powerful card for you. Now this game is all about interaction, it's all about limited information, and it's all about trying to read what's going on around the table. Sean, I know you've played a few games of Love Letter, what are your thoughts on it? I just think it's a simple, fun filler. They crack it out, and to use one of your terms, bosh, 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 wonderful game, but crack into something meatier. Yeah, what do you think about that? Do you think it's anything more than just a simple filler? Really? No, I don't think it's anything more than a simple filler. But I do think it's possibly the perfect filler. I think it's brilliant. Now, I heard about it beforehand, and someone told me there's a game based around 16 cards, and it was really, really good, and I kind of poofed. How good can a game with 16 cards be in it? Honestly, for four players, who's going to want to play that? It's going to be so easy and so simple. But what the game does, it doesn't try and put too many rules into play. It doesn't try and be too clever. It keeps the rules simple and lets the players play the game. And that's the kind of game, again, that I like. You can play this anywhere against anyone. I've played it with six-year-olds, and they got it. And not only did they get it, they got that lying and bluffing is part of the game. Now, that's very rare that you can get a game that simple that kids that young, although they are ruthless, most of them, can get that that's part of the game. First time I played with a six-year-old, she started guessing whether other players had a princess when she was playing the guard, and she was holding the princess. Now, that shows you there's something going on there. Now, I know that you've had uh, quite a back-to-back session of this. I don't think I'd like to play this game any more than once or twice, just as a filler, but you managed to play some big numbers of this game back-to-back, didn't you? No, it was away at um, Eastbourne at a London on Board Con, and we sat down at about 2 in the morning and started playing the game. Yeah, bright idea. Someone told me it was a 10-minute game. 13 plays of it later, we all wandered off to our rooms. What happened was... The more we played with each other around the table, the more certain moves started becoming familiar, certain patterns of card play. And it came to the point where if someone was playing a particular card, you could almost guess which of two cards they had in their hand. It really became fantastic because everyone got to know each other's play. And one play of a card could elicit 
people bursting out laughing around the table. And the people watching were, yeah, there were other people up at this time, by the way. They were watching and going, what are you all laughing at? And then when we tried to unravel the chain of events as to, well, he did that and she'd done this and they did that. And two games ago, this had happened. And of course, well, no one knew what the hell we were talking about. In a game this small and this quick and this fun, I really think that's something special. There are so many fillers that people play that take 20, 25 minutes, and there's nothing in them. They're just so simple. There's no real decisions. There's nothing really interacting going on. You're almost killing time. I'm not really interested in playing fillers that kill time. There's a real game here. I agree. I was just sitting there trying to think of another filler that I would actually prefer to play rather than this. And I don't have the overwhelming love for this that you do, but I still can't think of a better filler game. But I don't place it any higher, well, much higher than a game like Snap, which is simple fun. It's a simple game to me. I don't want to play it every day. If there's if there's 10, 15 minutes and we can crack this one out, I'm more than happy to play it. I've never turned down a game of Love Letter, and I probably never will. No, sorry. Someone's administering medicine to me because you just compared Love Letter to Snap. I can't cope. So, uh, something's gone wrong here. You cannot be serious comparing this game to Snap. I have fun playing Snap. I have fun playing Love Letter. There's nothing much to them. There's an element of surprise to them, and there's an element of tension to both of them. And, yeah, I I enjoy them both. I think if you think there's an element of surprise and tension to Snap, then that says more about you than about Love Letter. Um, One thing I did want to say was I wanted to compare it to some of the other games that came out around the same time, such as Coup and... Kakalak and Poker Royal. Um, they're both card games again that came out in 2012, and they've both been popular and they've both been kind of put in the same category with Love Letter. But they are pure bluff games. There's no information available. You're just trying to read the players around the table. Now I don't find that as much fun. The reason why I find this is so much fun is there is some information. And as the round goes on and the stakes get higher, there's more and more information now. So, I'm sorry, I can't see how you compare it to a game like Snap. Um, one last thing is, the two different versions come with different numbers of rounds to play. Uh, the Japan brand actually tells you just play one round. Whoever wins once, that's, they're the winner of the game. Although they do put enough components in to play up to someone to win two hands as the winner of the game. And the AEG game gives you enough components to play up to someone can win four rounds and win. And after my extensive playtesting on that particular night, we reckon playing up to three rounds is best. Uh, yeah, of course, this isn't a game that you want to go on forever, but um, five minutes probably is a little bit too brief. So I'd say three rounds is about right for this. It just fits the niche that a filler game should do just correctly. To summarise for me, I really think the game is fantastic. I'm surprised at just how good a game it is just that deck of 16 cards I will throw in one negative the AEG copy I've got now I've never card sleeved a game in my life but I might have to card sleeve this because it's been played maybe a couple of dozen times now I know that sounds like a lot but that could be only say five hours play really and they're starting to wear the the colour on the back is starting to come off the card stock for a game that's going to get shuffled so much and get passed around so much I really think it should win a better quality But in terms of the game itself, fantastic. I really love it. It's one of my favourite games from last year. For me, simply, good filler, good fun. The game is fine. And those are our thoughts on Love Letter.
Okay, I'd like to talk about Escape, The Curse of the Temple, which is a 2012 release, which came out in Essen 2012, and it's from Queen Games, and from a designer called Christian Amundsen Oosterby. Now, Christian hasn't been the most prolific of designers, but what I could find is he designed a game called Hotel Samoa and Mamut. An interesting fact about Christian is he's also a doctor and a scientist. Escape is a cooperative game where one to five players are trying to escape from a cursed temple. Amazingly, should just one of your group find themselves trapped, then you will all lose. To set up, you lay out a row of three square tiles, each showing a combination of two out of the three possible symbols. For example, there could be two green adventurers, or one green and one blue key on one corner of that tile. All of the explorers start in the centre tile, which is the safe tile, or the safe room. And each player starts with five dice. On each die there are five symbols, which are as follows. A cursed mask. This is where you have to set the die aside and are unable to use it until it's released. A golden mask. Each of these counteracts up to two cursed masks belonging to you or one of your fellow adventurers who is in the same room as you. Now up to two of your set-aside cursed dice can now be rolled again by the owner. Next we have a red torch or a blue key. These are used to enter rooms, access treasure or activate gems. And lastly you have the green adventurer. Now there are two of these on the dice and these are the things that you need to move from room to room and to activate some of the gems in the game. So during the gameplay, everybody rolls their dice, takes actions, reveals new tiles, and move all at the same time. Players can share their dice results if they are in the same room. You must always roll the symbols required to move, and in certain rooms you have the opportunity to roll the right combinations of red and blue to reveal a gem, taken from the supply of a certain number. The more gems you reveal in this way makes your ultimate escape easier. This is important. It's a major component of the game. There is a soundtrack playing in the background. And eventually, a countdown will sound. And all the players must get back to the safe room before the time's up, or they lose one die for the next exploration phase. Once the exit tile has been revealed and placed, the players can now make their way towards it. And they can attempt to escape by rolling blue keys equal to the number of gems that are still in the supply i.e. haven't been found yet in the temple. That's why the more gems you find in the temple make your escape easier as it means you don't have to get as many of those blue key dice results. If all the players escape before the third countdown times out, everyone wins. If not, everyone loses. Now, it's a simple game, Ronan. What are your thoughts on it? It is a simple game. I also think it's a funny game. It's an energetic game. And it is, for once, a physical game, a game that will get you rolling quicker and quicker and looking around and shouting and pointing and I think there's a lot of fun in this game. I think everyone when you start playing starts off shouting and things start off very disorganised and people are rolling their own dice and heading off in different directions and all over the shop and there's no teamwork. But if you play this a couple of times all that chaos calms down and the tension actually comes through more because you're more likely to be getting closer to the end. And this is a game that really generates teamwork between people around the table. And there's not a lot of co-ops that actually generate that teamwork between each other. Often there's other things going on. Perhaps we'll just discuss in a second. But I think this is great for creating that camaraderie. I think I must have my miserable pants on today. Because this is another game that frustrates me. 
It's madness. It's chaotic. It's haphazard. It's just lots of noise and shouting and people throwing dice and roaring at each other. I don't get this game. I don't get the fun element. It just, it's just insane. It's an uncouth, uncivilised and inelegant game, to, to my mind. You must have been playing with the wrong people. Who was sitting next to you when you played this game? You. Right. You probably were playing with the wrong people then. No <laughs> way. No way. I'm not having this one at all. It can start like that. And I'm guessing maybe with certain groups of people, it can carry on like that. It's one of those games that really rewards playing twice or three times because you do start going, well, there's no point sitting here and everyone's just rolling and shouting and no one's listening to what's going on. You need to be in the same room as someone else to help them. People can get stuck. You need to agree on when dice are going to be unlocked. You can do that by adding an extra gem into the pool. You know, that has to be a team thing, but it's so quick. It can't be an alpha player thing. It can't be one player directing. It can't be all chaos either. So there's no general, and there's also not five lunatics running off. When you start playing it, you start coalescing. You start talking to each other. And when you have a few players that have maybe played it a couple of times that communication gets even quicker and you can start looking at what other people are doing. You're still having to roll quickly, so you can't plan everything out. There's still that slightly frantic thing to it. But I like that. I really think that's a positive. I just think there's a pressure going on, man. It's not a nice pressure. It's just a overwhelming pressure that, to roll your dice and there's this wall of noise coming at you and you can't make your decisions because you have to interact with everybody. But there isn't any interaction in this game, not real interaction. A wall of noise is not interaction. It's hard to see what others are doing. It's only people that are in the same room as you or happen to wander into the same room as you that you might look up and see what their dice results are doing. Everyone else, is you're oblivious to them. I don't think it's a great game for even interaction. And that's what it's billed as. It's not billed as the most interactive game in the world. It's a 10-minute dice roller. You've got to judge it on its own merits. What are people expecting from a game that says 10 minutes, real time, rolling dice? You're expecting a bit of lunacy and a bit of fun. It is stressful. I will agree to that. But I think that stress is funny because if you could play this with no time limit, it would be so easy. you just breeze through it. You'd be like, there's no game here. What's this all about? In fact, I have played it with no time limit, but only to teach younger children how to play it. Uh, and I've, I've done different things to make it easier for them. And in fact, there's another point. When you get really good at it, you can bring the curses in and you can make it harder. It's a game that scales in difficulty according to how good the group is. That's another fantastic thing. A 10-minute game in which scales. I think you nailed it on the head there. It's a children's game in my mind. I think I would have loved this as a rowdy 10-year-old. As a slightly older mindset, I just don't enjoy this game. And this guy designed this game he's a doctor and a scientist somebody who designs chaos in that mind how can they be a scientist unless it's an experiment on the devolution of man i think he's let himself down here it's not so much homus erectus but homus rollus and shouters <laughs> which is where i want to be this is the sort <laughs> of stress that de-stresses this is where you've been building on naggy, annoying things all day and things have been getting to you and there's little... And then you get in and you roll some dice and you have a bit of a shout and you stand up and the blood starts pumping and there's a little bit of chatting going on and that stress works its way out. It's like shout therapy. Well, this is shout dicing. You get to have a little bit of fun with it. Go with it. 
roll those dice, see what's going on, laugh at someone, laugh at the mistakes they're making because they're under pressure from the time. Enjoy it for what it is. We've got a million dice rollers coming out. There's castle dice, garden dice, pirate dice, my parrot's just died dice, let's make a wooden chair dice, let's all go to sleep dice, there's everything dice. This is one dice game where you're trying to do that collection of certain rolls which we all know this one actually does something with that mechanic. It's a very fun game. I think it's a very good game. I think it's got a part in a game night. Not to be built around, but just to enjoy. I think it stands out at a crowd because it's one of the very few dice games that I don't love. It's not a game that I'm going to leap across the table and punch someone if they bring out of their bag. We get really punchy on this podcast, don't we? You do. It's not, <laughs> it's not the type of game that I'm going to scream at somebody for bringing out. How dare you bring out this game? I'll play it, but it just seems like unorganised chaos to me. And I'm not sure that that's the setting for a great game. It's lots of fun. It's super light. It's not going to outlast its welcome. It gets people talking and laughing. It's the lubricant for social interaction. And there we have it. Escape the Curse of the Temple. Thunderstone. Now, Thunderstone Advanced Caverns of Bane, it's the most recent version I've played of this system, but I think that during this we're going to integrate all of the different Thunderstone releases that have come out, be they the Thunderstone Basic or the Thunderstone Advanced, which added a couple of new mechanics into the game, but it's pretty much the same game with slight tweaks on it. The game is for one to five players. Now, printed on the box is a big fat lie because it says 60 minutes. If you're playing this game in 60 minutes, you're playing by yourself and you've got a plane to catch. Two people games of this, hour and a half minimum. Four players, you're talking two and a half hours up, in my experience anyway. And it's by AEG, and we went through some of their games in the Love Letter uh, discussion. The designer is Mike Elliott, and it appears we like to talk about Mike Elliott games because he's one of the designers of Quarriers. He also did Star Trek Fleet Captains, and he's designed Lost Legends, which is coming out soon. Now, the Thunderstone system now covers nine big boxes of cards. It's a big game franchise and I think it's something we really need to delve into. It's a deck builder. So it's taken that original mechanic from Dominion and it's tried to do something different with it. It's put a fantasy theme on there and what it's trying to do is get you to build up party of adventurers and to get them better and improve them and take them into either well usually a dungeon and fight the monsters that are in the dungeon so the way the game works is there's an area laid out which is called the village and in the village there's certain cards there for sale gold is the currency of the game and the cards you start with are going to give you a certain amount of gold and they also have some very basic abilities including attack and light which is a mechanic we'll talk about in a little while in the village, different cards you can get are heroes. You can buy heroes that are going to join your party. And you're going to buy some weapons those heroes might be able to wield. Some spells that actually you, whoever you might be, this omnipresent puppet master figure, can cast those spells, not your heroes. You're going to get different equipment you can use. There's food there which has different effects on your heroes and allows them to do different things or use better weapons and also sometimes there's villagers for sale and they have a different effect they don't usually attack you when you go into the dungeon but they might help you in other ways 
On your turn, you have a choice of either going to the village and spending gold. There's a couple of other things you can do in the village. You can rest to get rid of bad cards, curse cards out of your hand to unclog your deck. You can also spend any experience points you've got. You're going to get them by defeating monsters. And you can level up any characters in your hand by using those experience points. They've all got a certain number which requires to take them to a higher level, which is going to make them more effective. Those cards which you can get to bring into your deck from the village, they have different values on them. So they all have a cost, so obviously how much gold you have to have to spend. Some of them also have a gold value. So if they come up in your hand again from the deck as you play through, you can use them later on to help you buy things. Some have an attack value, and they're the ones you're going to want to bring into the dungeon with you to attack the monsters. Also have strength values if they're a character, which tells you which weapons they can use. And they have light on them. So I said I was going to talk about light. The dungeon is dark, and the deeper you go into the dungeon, the darker it gets. Light counteracts the darkness in the dungeon. Now, each rank of the dungeon has a certain level of darkness, and it basically makes the monsters more difficult to defeat. So light is something that's quite important, because it's difficult to attack the monsters that are deeper in the dungeon if you don't have any light in your hand. So the dungeon. This is a row of monsters across the top. The monsters all have a strength, which you're going to have to be able to match from the cards you draw in your hand if you decide to go into that dungeon and attempt to defeat the monster. They also have an XP value, so you're going to gain experience points for defeating the monsters. They're also going to give you a certain amount of victory points, and that's how you win the game. You collect those monster cards, some other cards, like I said, give you victory points, but mostly the monsters you defeat. And it's possible that some of them are going to have a gold value on, and when they come back up in your hand during the game, they're going to help you to go into the village and buy more powerful cards. Monsters have various other things on them. They have some effects, for example. So some monsters have ambush on, which means when you turn them over, they're going to do something. Some monsters even give you curses. Now, these are useless cards, which are going to come into your deck, and they're going to do something bad to you. The later versions of Thunderstone have different versions of the curses. They're all bad, and that's all you really need to know. So when the game ends, depending upon, like I say, whether you get the Thunderstone or defeat a bear or a guardian or whatever it might be for that particular scenario, everyone counts up the number of VPs they've collected in their deck and whoever's got the most VPs wins. Now this is one of the first games, as I said, to take the deck building mechanism and try and turn it into something more and something extra. Dominion, as we said, when we put it in the vault, great game that it is, it's pretty much themeless. This was an attempt to put a theme into deck building. Sean, how do you think they did? First, I want to take you on a little journey. Back about four years ago, when a wide-eyed little Sean was led by the hand into the wonderful world of board gaming. And one of the first games that that wide-eyed little fellow played was Thunderstone, and he loved it. He adored it. He loved it so much, he eventually went out and bought it. Now, as the wizened old curmudgeon that I am, I'm starting to see a few flaws in Thunderstone. Flaws that I didn't initially see because I've now played games like Dominion. I think it is Dominion-esque with the, with a theme tacked on. I think it does bring different things to the table, as you mentioned. I think there are problems with it. And one of the main problems I've got with it is you can get stuck. You can have certain types of cards available in the village. Now, if a monster that's sitting in the dungeon doesn't suit those cards, it can become very, very difficult to kill that monster. And all you end up doing is everybody goes around picking up card after card after card until they eventually have enough to kill the monster. And sometimes they don't even get to that stage. I think that's a part of this game that can become frustrating. Have you encountered that at all, Ronan? 
you definitely can get stuck. With so many cards available and so many different monsters, some are invulnerable to magic attacks, some you need magic attacks, some of this, some of that. Who knows? There's so many different things can happen in this game. So what you can do is decide you'll go into the dungeon and attack a monster knowing you have no chance of defeating it. That monster gets taken out of the dungeon, put it at the bottom of the deck, you don't have any penalty, and the game continues. It's a waste of your turn, and also I found people are very reluctant to do it. It breaks the suspension of disbelief that anyone has in the theme. When you're doing something as gamey as that, in a game that's trying to capture a theme, and that's its unique selling point, something's gone wrong, hasn't it? Because it's completely breaking away from the story. It's, oh, I can't really do anything on this turn. I'm just going to go to the dungeon and cycle the monsters. You know you can't defeat the monsters in the dungeon when you look at your hand. In this case, if you're trying to cycle them, you know you're going to lose when you go in. And that's a problem. You know everything. It's a maths puzzle. You can work out exactly whether you're going to win or lose. There's a complete lack of tension in the game. There's no, oh, shall I go in there or shan't I go in there? It's just, hmm, let me add this up. It might take me two or three minutes because different cards interact with each other and this strength adds to that. And if I've got a weapon and if I've got Bob the local priest with me and if someone's giving me a foot rub and I've got pink socks on, I get a plus five for this. And it's a real maths puzzle because you're trying to add to this and that. But don't forget that monster's adding this at the moment and this is taking away that. And oh, you're sitting there doing basic maths plus four, minus three, minus two. Jill wants to buy four apples. They cost 16p each. That's what you're doing, and actually for a lot of the game, you're watching someone else do that. Because as the monsters move up and different ones come out, those numbers are just going up and down all the time. It's like playing a game against a bar graph. What I'd like to move on to now is that, obviously the original Thunderstone, and there's variants of that, there's Thunderstone, Dragonspire. Now, they brought out Thunderstone Advance. I just want to know what you think Advance brought to the game, if anything at all. Brought... Some extra effects, they've tried to add an element of doubt to the game. So there's more cards that say, if you go to the dungeon and you do that, you can draw two more cards. Or there's monsters that say, if you do this, that might happen. They're trying to make it so it's not that maths puzzle. But what I found was, they're just making it a bit more of a tricky maths puzzle. Because if you, no one's going to risk going in the dungeon if they think it's not likely they're going to win. So... It didn't really change the game up much. There's slightly more effects. There's treasures and stuff. But at its core, it's still that mathy, slow, if the wrong cards are out, frustrating game that grinds to a halt far too easily. I think you stole my Thunderstone there. Oh, but oh, oh, I went there. I think it improved the areas of the game that were already good. It made what they were good at a little bit better, but it didn't, as you said quite correctly, didn't address the core issues with the game. I think it's a good game. I still enjoy playing this game. I do think there's something missing, though, and I do think that deck building has evolved with the advent of Dominion and um, games subsequent to it. Do you agree with that? or? Yeah, I do agree. There's other games that have taken deck building and they've done something different to them. So something we've played and we enjoy is Core Worlds, for example, which is thematic and gives you more stuff to do with the deck building or a few acres of snow in which you're building a deck, but there's a map and there's other things to do. It was a good idea. I don't think it was executed that well. There's something we've talked about in the other games on this episode. Uh, it's Narrative Arc. 
This game has zero narrative arc. It's just flat. The monsters come in different levels, and the way the game is written, you just shuffle them all up and you put them out. Now, what if I get three of the highest level monsters early doors? I'm going to be sitting there with this terrible deck, no chance to get experience points to make my heroes better, and the only option you have is to do that damn cycling of monsters. There is a variant that addresses this. Now, I've played it, and I tell you what, it makes this game so, so, so much better. It's the epic variant, which uh, Tom Vassell and Richard Launius came up with. And in this, there's two different things you do. In terms of the village, you take all the available cards. So let's say you get all the weapons, and you shuffle them up, and you make two piles of weapons. And now everything can be available in the game. You take all the heroes, you shuffle them up, and you make four piles. You take all the spells, and all, of it, and all the rest of them, and you do the same thing. What you have there is, you remove the possibility that you can get stuck with village cards that can't do anything against the monsters. On each player's turn, they can also discard one card from any of the piles, so they can try and cycle through to get to the cards you want. It's a bit of a pain to set up, especially difficult with the heroes, because you have to keep the heroes of the higher levels all available and kind of indexed. But it really does stop that getting stuck in the game. It does make it a lot better. How does that variant sound to you, Sean? I haven't actually played the Epic variant, but it definitely sounds like it would address a few of my issues with the game. The other thing the Epic variant does is it rigs the dungeon deck. So when I just mentioned there where you can get monsters out in higgledy-piggledy, what it does is you put the level 1 monsters on top of the deck, then the level 2 ones and level 3 ones, etc. So you're going to get easier monsters to start with, which allows you to do get some XP, allows you to have realistic targets, and also brings slightly more of that arc into it. So the game's getting harder and harder and harder, rather than this higgledy-piggledy difficulty level. One thing I did want to talk about that we haven't really touched on is uh, the build quality of this game. This game's a beautiful game. It's well designed, the cards are well made, it's well put together, the artwork's amazing. I do think it's a nice game, to be honest with you. I think that's probably a lot of the appeal. There's a lot of nice art going on. It's cool, it appeals to the fantasy fan within you. There's a wide variety of monsters, a large variety of adventurers, there's lots of cool things going on. The graphic design's fairly clear as well. Uh, yeah, I like it. I think it's got good components. I also like now that you get experience tokens rather than the experience cards you used to get. I don't know, just something little like that. Little plastic tokens makes it more tactile. It's fun. So what are your final thoughts on this murder? My final thoughts on Thunderstone are I'm sorry to say because I really wanted to like you Thunderstone but you just got too long you got too mathy and there's no incentive to play well or play within the theme of the game there's no incentive to take on monsters early because they just clog your hand they clog your deck while your deck is still quite small and they're most of them are pretty useless when it comes to fighting and getting experience points so there's a little bit too much of hanging back and trying to perfect your deck before you actually go and start doing anything the epic variant improves it it makes it into a fun game i'm wondering how much of that is just trying out all the different combos and there's so many different combinations available uh, you actually start feeling like you're making decisions because in the standard game there are no actual decisions to make if you've got six gold buy whatever costs six gold and the maximum of them is going to be maybe two things and then if you've got enough attack to take out a monster do the maths work out if you can do it and go and do it it's all working out it's not making decisions so i'm sorry thunderstone you had to go. And my final thoughts really are 
it was for me a great game. It was a game I enjoyed a few years ago. I'm glad I played it because it was part of my path into board and card games. But now I think I've evolved a little bit past it. Still has a place in my heart, but I don't think it'll be have a place on my table anymore. And those were our thoughts on Thunderstone and the Thunderstone Advanced Game System. This is a game that really affected me, so I really want to talk about Belfort, which is the 2011 release from Tasty Minstrel Games. This is designed by Jay Cormier and Sen Fung Lim. These guys work together on a slightly obscure, but wait, there's more, and a much more popular train of thought. And Sen Fung will be releasing Midnight Men later this year. The game plays two to six players, and a suggested playing time is roughly two hours. Belfort is a worker placement and area control game, with a strong element of resource management going on. The general theme of the game is there's been a clerical error, and a number of supervisors have been hired to oversee the building of the new Belfort castle, instead of just one. Obviously you are one of these master builders who must now compete for the reward, which is the coveted key to the city. The game lasts seven rounds, and they come in the form of a calendar periods, where you score only in the third, fifth and seventh period. And you control a team of elves and dwarfs who will do your resource collecting for you. Elves can collect wood from the forest, dwarfs gather stone from the quarry, you need both of them to gain metal from the mine, and either of them can harvest gold in the gold mine, visit the recruiter's desk to gain another worker, or pop along to the king's camp to win a better turn order crest, which basically means you choose where you go in the next round. There are also a number of randomised guilds around the city that give bonuses and extra resources, with the difference being that only one person can activate them. These guilds can be built by a player, meaning that the payment for them goes to the owner rather than to the bank, and that contributes to the area control aspect of the game that I'll discuss now. You start the game with a selection of property cards, which you can build. These give you more areas where only you can place your workers to get bonuses. That's not all they do, however. They allow you to place your coloured buildings in the city, which is where the area control aspect of the game comes in. Some of these cards have an area that can, has to be unlocked before you can reap the full benefits, and to unlock this, you place a gnome on the card. Gnomes, I hear you say. You haven't mentioned those, well I will now. Gnomes can be hired for just this purpose, to unlock special property effects. They can be hired for gold or acquired through special abilities. Just the basics of each round now. Each round has four to five actions, depending on if it's a scoring round. The first action is calendar, which is very basically just move your marker one place on the calendar. The second action is placement, where you assign your workers around the city and resource areas. Then you have collection, where you gather all your resources that your placed workers have earned. Actions is the next stage, where you perform actions. Some of the actions that you can do are hire gnomes, buy new property cards, enter the exchange to swap resources, obviously at the set rate. You can also build properties, build walls and guilds. The last action is obviously to score. And this, as I said before, happens in the third, fifth and seventh round. 
The scoring works as follows. You divide the city into five segments, which is easy as the board is comprised of these five segments. Then you work out who has the most buildings in each area, with the first person getting five points and the second receiving three points. If you have a four or more person game, then the third person will get a point. Otherwise, that's the only scoring. You then score bonuses based on who's got the most elves, dwarfs and gnomes, which can be quite important as a fountain my cost. And that's roughly the way the Belfall works, so I'll pass you over to Roland for his initial thoughts. You said this came from Tasty Minstrel Game Shawn, which is a company which has been building itself up in recent years. And one of the things that really illustrates this is the quality of the components. Uh, I know that one of the things we did as soon as we finished playing was to get out my old, battered, and not very good copy of uh, the first edition of Homesteaders, which I think was their first game to ever come out. Now, that's a fantastic game. I really enjoy it. But the components are not really up to scratch for, for modern board games. But these ones are beautiful, aren't they? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely, Ronan. I think I was quite shocked at the components in Homesteaders after playing Belfort. And then you wanted to show me the evolution of a games company, as you said. And, yeah, it, it was flimsy. It was cheap. But I suppose that's when they didn't have a lot of money to put things together. And they are evolving. And Belfort is fantastic build quality. I only hope that they continue in that vein, because I've backed their latest project, which is Dungeon Roll, on Kickstarter. That's made them a few pennies. There'll be nice components from now on, I'm sure. That went absolutely mental on Kickstarter, didn't it? One of my things here to talk about is the fact that the scoring is not quite what it first seems, but I think you really want to talk about that first, don't you? Yeah, yeah, to mention that now, didn't you? I didn't realise the importance of the body of elves and the body of dwarf workers. And yeah, I, I fell foul to it. I thought it was an area manipulation game. I managed my resources. I got my area control going. I got the most pieces out on the board. I had that economy was chugging along, and you sailed past me, because every round you had more elves and more dwarfs. That was three points, three points, and... Don't forget the gnomes, that'll be three more points. Gnomes, 21 points in a, in a 50 or 60 point game, just from that. So that's quite powerful, but that's the beauty of this game for me, is there is a lot of things coming together to make one game. Well, one of my concerns with regards to that is, yeah, it does look like area control because the actual board, which comes in those five triangles and looks fantastic as a pentagon, all your concentration is on that. It seems like that's the most important thing. But in the other part of the scoring, does it seem like there could be a problem with runaway leader when it comes to worker types? There's not that many ways of getting more workers, more elves, more dwarfs, what have you. And if someone gets an edge, are they always going to be ahead throughout the game? I'm not sure that that's strictly true, because I had the ability to get more workers. I just didn't think it was important. I had a building that only I could use. Each turn, I could have got an extra worker. Now, going first, if I'd have decided to go first, I could have got an extra two workers minimum. And if you guys had neglected that area, I could have got three workers. So I think there is ways of doing it, definitely. It depends on the card draw, I suppose. There's only those two set ways of getting your workers into your hand. So maybe in some games, but in that game that we play, definitely not. i got maybe a little bit of concern is that when you have less players, the city seems like it could become deadlocked. That It's very zero-sum. It's very, will I get two points here and take them off you there, or I take two points here and take them off you there. With more players, I could see that being slightly more interesting, but did we talk about the downtime? Because... 
it's very thinky this game. It's really you've got to concentrate on lots of different things going on, and with more players, it, this game kind of forces AP on you. No matter how quick a player you think you are, is that going to be a concern that less players, the city manipulation is not so interesting, but more players it might be a bit too slow. Oh, absolutely. I will address your point definitely in a minute, but I just want to say one thing about this game. This game is a wolf in sheep's clothing. This game is designed, it's cartoony, it's bright, it's colourful, vibrant, it's got a happy, jolly feel to the design of it. But let's make no mistake at all, this is a tough Euro, which comes on to your point. There were moments where I had my head in my hands what do I do? How do I do this that you don't get that and the other person doesn't get this? It's tough, yeah. I think there is going to be a bit of analysis paralysis. Not a massive amount. I think I consider myself to be quite a quick player. I probably took longer than I normally would and probably took longer than my opponents in, in the game that I played recently. But even then, I think I was only taking two minutes, maybe three minutes. You'll probably tell me I took 15 now. It was at least an hour, an hour a turn. <laughs> yeah. It's a thinky game. It looks like it's going to be a fun breeze, and it's not. It is a two-hour game, and it does hurt. I think I got up after that, and I had to walk around the house for a few minutes just to stretch out and think, where did I go wrong? I think you're going to get that with any thinky Euro game. It's, it's never going to be a game that you're not going to have to think about, especially towards that final round, when you're trying to eke out every point you can. The tax mechanism, whereby the more points you've scored each round, you're going to have to pay more and more and more tax in gold. Can you see that as something that can be manipulated? Did you ever think at any point, do you know what, I'm just going to try and hang back here and not move into the next tax bracket so that I'm not getting hammered by gold all the way through? I did think about it, but I quickly forgot about it. I think, yeah, I think there's a tactic there. It's, yeah, I think you could probably do that if you wanted to build up a bit of money where you could go into the exchange, maybe buy more or more resources, pool your resources, and then attack late and buy lots of things, or so build lots of things towards the end. Yeah, I think there's probably something you could do about that. I haven't really explored it. I kind of just hit the ground running and just made things as quickly as I possibly could. And I don't know if that benefited me or didn't I'd probably have to play it the other way to see how it goes what about yourself what do you think I think it's actually addressed in the rule book or guide or something you get in that box that it says don't do that but gold is always a concern in the game the economy is quite tight you always seem to want to do more with, with the money you have so I think one of my rounds of the seven I pretty much sacrificed the whole thing just to fire everyone I had into that gold mine to get gold so that I didn't have to worry about it for the rest of the game. So also there's certain buildings you can build to try and help. So gold is definitely a concern. I think it's quite interesting. And again, something with more plays we'll be able to explore how that economy exactly works. Uh, another thing is the guilds. There's three different types of guilds. There's the basic ones and there's the interactive ones. And there's the other ones whose names escapes me. But we had a look at those interactive ones. They seem a bit gotcha a bit nasty for a game that has this much AP and everything else seems work outable but those guilds you appears you're able to steal things of people and what have you do you think they're going to add anything to the game I think when we get to the stage where we've played this game a good few times that's when they might creep into your thoughts and think you know what are they going to add something different and I think they will add something different they're quite nasty and they're quite in your face so 
And that's probably the one thing that this game doesn't really have. Yeah, when you're placing your buildings, you can upset people by taking over their area majority, or you can take resources on the actual city map off people when you know they want them. But other than that, you're not really interacting with people in a negative way. This adds that. This adds that. It turns it into a nasty game, whereas it's a thinky, hard game. That would turn it into definitely a nasty game. And usually... That's the kind of game you like. I like it, but I prefer it in games where I can think about that interaction. That's my main focus, rather than I'm already struggling with the mechanisms and I'm trying to build something up here and make sure that this whole engine's running correctly. And then you come in and you steal the cog out of my engine I've created and suddenly I'm like, what the? I've just spent 19 minutes building that. What are you doing? And that's when I can get violent. And people don't need to see that, do they? (laughs) <laughs> One thing I just want to ask you, um, while I was playing it, I was sitting there thinking of Stone Age. Now, does this game actually compare to Stone Age? I think it does. I think there's a lot of similarities. You've lost me. Go on. Expand on that idea. Well, just the, the worker management. and it's, it's a Obviously, it's a worker placement. And Stone Age, you obviously have to feed your people, but you're placing and you're building up resource in order to build buildings and i just felt that this was a meteor version of stone age i can't see it but i'll leave you there (laughs) (laughs) you think love letter and snap are the same so we're just gonna roll with that shall we this isn't this isn't my finest hour for comparisons i won't lie (laughs) um did you have anything i think i'm not sure how well it's come across but i know that you really enjoy playing it did you have any major concerns with the game i've I've got to say, no. I, I just thought that it brought a lot of elements together really well. And it seems fiddly at first, but I think the gameplay is actually quite straightforward, despite the amount of times I asked you if I could do things, which was uh, met by you being placid and kind as normal. And Let's face it, you're only asking because you're trying to break the rules again. Well, you've got to try these things, haven't you? Yeah, I just feel that this is right sits not right in the niche that it's not a massively heavy game. It's not one of your big, big Euro games. It's not a light game. I'm not don't mean fillers, but it's not a light crack it out in half an hour, forty five minutes job. It sits in the middle there and I think there is a niche for that and I think it does the job really well. Played it a couple of times and both times I have enjoyed it a lot. It's a good brain burner. It's a brain burner that's not really frustrating. I think it is slightly slow to play. I don't think you get the full variety in play with less than four or five players. I think more players, there's more going on, there's there's more uh, happening in the city, which can be more interesting, but I think it's a bit too slow. So the slight thing there, but don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed it. It's not a game I want to play loads. It's not a game I can see myself trying to get a dozen plays in the next year and really get to know it and learn it all, because... I'm not so sure there's a lot of variety of play to it. I think the guilds change around a bit. I'm not sure how much they change, though. You can either get lots of metal or lots of something else. I think it's a very good game. It's not a personal favourite. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I can admire it, but I don't love it. Sean? I think I've made it quite clear. I really, really enjoyed this game. I'm really eager to play it again. I also hear it plays quite well with two players. They've got a slight variant going on for two players where you move sort of ghost players around to block you. And that was us discussing Belfort.
game I'd like us to chat about is Forbidden Island, a 2010 release for two to four players, designed by Matt Leacock and published by GameRight. Matt Leacock is most famous for designing the big brother of this game, and that's Pandemic, the wildly successful co-op, which has just come out in a new edition. And he also designed a Roll Through the Ages. GameRight are not such a big name in the hobby game market. They more make family-based games, but some of the games you might have heard of are, or to call it a game up your stretch, but Rory Story Cubes. It's an interesting dice-rolling storytelling thing for kids. And Go Away Monster, which made a bit of an impact. Forbidden Island is very much the successor to Pandemic. The rules I'm about to say, if you know Pandemic, this is all going to sound very familiar. But what Matt Leacock did is he took those rules and he condensed them and he concentrated a little bit more on theme, I think, and tried to make it more of a game that you can play as a family. So it is a co-op and the theme of the game is that you're adventurers and you've landed on the Forbidden Island. And there are four treasures on the island one links to each of the four elements and you're going to try and travel around the island as it's sinking around you because you've broken the curse by landing on it and collect those four treasures and get back to your helipad and get out of there on a helicopter before either any of you die or the whole island sinks or one of those vital areas sinks for example the helipad if that goes you're gone like a lot of co-op games there's a lot more ways to lose this game than there is to win it now you set up the island initially you stick out a square of 16 of these square tiles, which have got a location on each, and then you fire two on each of the sides to make a 24-tile island. There are two tiles which show locations where you can claim each of the four treasures. So those are important ones, those eight, and also, as I said, that helipad one. There are two decks of cards in the game. One of the decks of the cards is going to help you, and one of the decks of cards is going to hinder you, and you must play both during your turn. In the first deck, there are cards for each of the four different types of treasures, and you're going to get to draw two of these on your turn. What you need to do is collect four of one type, go to that location I discussed before, and as an action, hand in those four cards, and you're going to claim one of those treasures. Other cards in that deck are special powers, which are going to help you out, and the very important airlift card, which you need to use to get off the island. Also in there, however, are the Waters Rise cards. Now, I'll come back to the Waters Rise cards, they're how the game ramps up and builds an arc throughout. The other deck of cards, at the end of your turn after you've taken your actions and drawn your cards, you're going to have to turn some of these over, depending upon at what level the game is playing at the time. And it's the Water Rises cards that affects that. But they're the Flood cards. And for each of those 24 location tiles in the game, there's a corresponding card. And when you turn it over, that location on the board becomes more flooded. Now, there's only three stages. There's completely fine, there's flooded, and there's gone. If it's completely fine and you turn over its card, then you also turn over the tile. You turn it to its flooded side. If the tile is flooded, you have to remove it from the game if you draw its card again. And that's a real problem because it starts breaking up the island. And one of the important things during the game is to make sure you keep routes between those vital nine locations to make sure you can actually complete the game. It also ramps up the difficulty because the card corresponding to the tile that's been taken out of the game is taken out of the deck, which means as the game goes on, cards for the locations which are left in the game are going to come up more often. On your turn, you have three actions. And generally what you're going to do is you're going to move around the island, you're going to shore up the tiles, either the ones you're on or the adjacent ones, and in doing that you turn it from its flooded side back to its fine side. So you're delaying the sinking of the island. Every player is also going to have a character-specific action 
drawn from a set of cards right at the beginning of the game. Now let's go back to those Water Rises cards. When you draw one, what happens is all the cards from the, for the locations which have been played already get picked up, shuffled, and put back on top of those location cards. Now that means the locations that have already started to flood are going to flood again. So you know where you're going to get hit. It adds a good bit of tension because when you pull one of those Water Rise cards, you know you can look at the tiles that are in trouble and think, oh no, any second now they're going to come out again. The second effect it has is it puts the peril level up which means you're going to have to draw more and more location cards as you go through the game. You might start off only having to draw two around, and it goes to three and four, finally five, and there actually comes a level when if you've drawn enough Water Rises cards, you just run out of time. It goes to danger, and that's it. You've lost. Another way of losing the game. So that's how you're going to play Forbidden Island. You're going to jump onto the island, you're going to wander around the place, you're going to try and keep shoring up against the flooding that keeps on coming, and you're trying to grab the treasures before everything gets too much on top of you, and the island drowns. Get those four treasures, get out. Sean, have you got any thoughts on Forbidden Island? The first thought I've had, and it's something that I'm always likely to go straight to, because I'm all about the pun. The components of this are are beautiful. The artwork is beautiful, and for such a low price, I mean, you can buy this for well under £20. What a lovely game, and what a well-crafted game for well under £20. What do you think? Yeah, too true. I think it's about £12 at the moment you can get it for. Now, there's a lot of game in this tin for £12. I know some people don't like tins, Bah, live with it. It's beautiful. You're right. And each of those locations has got its own artwork, and the card has got the same artwork on. It just it does look lovely. And what it also does is it's visually striking. When you get the game out and you set it up, people want to come and see it and go, oh, what is that? You also, for the treasures, you get these four little figurines, which are really sort of tactile, and especially playing with younger kids, they want to get the treasures because then they get to hold them, especially the gem-like fire one. That's a real hit with the girls in this house. Right, next point is more about the gameplay. Now, I feel that this is one of the most genuine co-ops that is around. I think it's one of those games that you really do have to work as a unit. And nobody can take over that and boss boss you around because it's quite simplistic in what you have to do. It's not like you've forgotten to do something or you're not quite sure if you can do this or that. Everybody will know exactly what they can and can't do. I think that just makes for a much better co-op experience, especially with younger kids, which I think we've played a few times with the younger generation, and it really works very well. They they help each other out, and there's a real team spirit when you finally get off the island. I absolutely agree with you, yeah. Um, One of the problems that people sometimes encounter with Pandemic, the Big Brother game, is that other people can take over your turn. Now, in Pandemic, the danger's coming from different areas, and also, it's more strategic. Things are slightly more spread out. It's a longer game. This game is very tactical. When things go wrong, they go wrong on a turn, and they go wrong quickly. So you're reacting all the time to what's happening. So there is no chance of getting some grand strategy together and, and doing that thing around the table you sometimes see in co-ops that drives me crazy. You do that this turn. You do that that turn. You over there, you do this. And now on my turn, I'm going to do that. Alright, we'll sit here for 25 minutes just doing what you scripted for us, shall we? You can't do it in Forbidden Island. The reduction in the complexity actually takes away the ability to do that. It's a tactical game. You have to think on your feet. And you're right, it really brings the theme out. Information from where the peril's coming from is really easy. 
so everyone also can see it around the table. There's no need to sort of be like, oh, yeah, I can see you're looking in that direction. But if you're as clever as me, you can see that this is also a problem. There's none of that going on. Everyone can see because it's so simple. Simplicity is a real big bonus. Right, I'm going to play devil's advocate because it's quite obvious that I quite like this game. Do you feel that the random draw adds or takes away from the game? And do you feel like it's too dependent on luck in that draw? The whole game is kind of infested with these random draws. There's random for the treasure cards. There's random whether you get those bonus actions at the right time. It's random whether that one location card that you don't want to come out at this particular time comes out. But I think in this one, the decks are so small that if you're not going to get hit. You kind of have an idea. It's absolutely possible to go through that 24-card location deck and have it come around again. So you know you're going to see those cards. So there's no point kind of looking at the board and going, oh, well, I see, yeah, mm, that tile might not come out anytime soon. So maybe we don't... No, it's going to come out soon. There's not enough locations for it not to. Uh, also with the treasures, that deck, you're going to go all the way through that deck and start going again. And that's in only, what, a 40-minute game? So they're going to come through. If you don't get them on the first time, you'll get them on the second time. And Pandemic is a bit different because if you get through those helpful cards, or those, those city cards, if you go through that, you've lost. Not in this one. If you go through it, you just go again and again. So if you don't hit those globes or whatever it's called on the first one through, you'll hit them on the second time through. And like I say, a 40-minute game, highly thematic. I think the random, it's there. Just go with it. It really helps that theme. We keep mentioning the, the name of Pandemic. Now, I think we will both agree that this is probably pandemic light, and much, as you said in your intro to it, it's a family-friendly pandemic. Now, if you don't have a family, is it worth getting this game if you've already got pandemic? Or even if you haven't, would you rather go for pandemic? I think pandemic is the superior game for me. For example, if we've got our mates round, all adults to play games, or if I'm going down to London on board, I'm not that likely to bring Forbidden Island with me. Yeah, I think the target audience is younger players, more casual players. It has its place. I've got both of them in my collection, for example, but then I do play games with kids. So for me, perhaps it's slightly different. But if you're a gamer, yeah, Pandemic, which I really think is a very good game. Uh, I'm going to shock nobody by being... Contrary to, to that, I'm not a big fan of Pandemic. I actually prefer Forbidden Island. I do feel that Pandemic suffers from the alpha player syndrome. That's why I like Forbidden Island. It doesn't. It's, it's so everywhere. If you would just do as you were told, you'd enjoy Pandemic a bit more, wouldn't you? <sighs> it starts again. It starts again. Let me talk about something that I've talked about with other games today and I really want to talk about it here and it's a narrative arc to a game and it's something that often gets overlooked when we when we review games and talk about games and it's so important some games get it wrong this game gets it right what's going to happen is you're going to let some of the periphery tiles that you don't need go because you can't save all parts of the island and as they're going those more important tiles are going to come up more and more often and you're going to be drawing more and more cards because the water rises cards comes out and the pressure builds and builds and builds and it's fantastic that's how you want a game like this to go, to slowly build up and creep the tension together and have the end of the game be the most exciting part of the game. I'll give you one, for example, Seasons came out last year and it's got loads of good stuff to do with it, but its narrative arc is completely rubbish because it's all front-loaded. That game lasts three, three years. The first year is cool because you're doing stuff. Second year is all right, you're seeing what your stuff's done. And the third year, you're wishing the game away because you've got nothing left to do. 
complete opposite here. You start off, everything seems fine. You let a couple go here and there, and suddenly it starts ramping up, and people start standing up, and people are getting all excited. I really think that this game got that right. I think um, we've already talked about Thunderstone, and I think that managed to get the narrative arc a little bit on the wrong side as well. What do you think? I think you're right, yeah. Um, Seems like we're getting towards the end of this. There's one thing I did want to mention, and that's the sequel for Forbidden Island, that's Forbidden Desert, is going to come out this summer, and I'm getting quite excited about it. It's looking fairly similar. You've got to find clues, and you've got to actually build this funky machine to get out of the desert. It's got a cool row and column grid mechanism in it. Instead of the flood meter you have in Forbidden Island, it's got a storm meter. Instead of Forbidden Island, you're going to die by drowning. In Forbidden Desert, you're going to die because you've got no water. And it looks like maybe it adds a few little bits in there and tacks stuff onto Forbidden Island. And it could be a good mid-range between Forbidden Island and Pandemic. It might just, you don't like Pandemic, you think it takes too long, or you don't like the theme, whatever you, but Forbidden Island looks a bit too simple. Possibly Forbidden Desert out this uh, summer might be um, fitting into that little niche. So I'm looking forward to trying that. Oh, definitely something that I want to... I want to look at yeah, because I think that might solve the problems that I have with this game. I do like this game, but I find it a little bit too simplistic sometimes. I think it's a great game for introducing to new gamers, and I think it's a great game for playing with kids. I'm not sure if there's enough in it. Maybe at the higher levels of the game, when you're adding the things in that make it a lot more difficult. But for me, it's a good game, not a great game. What's your final thoughts, Ronan? I think you've got it right for me as well there. I think it's for gamers, it's a good game. It's going to pass the time. You want to feel half an hour cool, get out for Beard and Island, because it's going to be familiar, I think. There's nothing difficult in there. For family gaming, it's brilliant. You can really tell a story with it. Kids love it, love the nature of it, love the great artwork. So if you've got any young ones around, you can play for Beard and Island with them. I pretty much guarantee you a good time. Big thanks to everyone for listening to us today. You can catch all our other podcasts at 2d6.org, along with a whole host of other gaming goodness. You can catch us on Twitter now at Game Pit Podcast and join our Board Game Geek Guild. You can also contact us and ask us any questions at thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Theme, the Arab. 